The Bob Murphy Show, episode 210. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show I am broadcasting, or I guess I'm recording actually, this episode from the Cleveland airport at precisely, as of this moment, it is 2 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, it's a long story. I was at Mises U, I had to change my flights, and uh, here I am waiting for my connection. Let me take this moment to complain about a private sector company. People can say, Bob, it's a private company. Do whatever they want. That's true. But I'm a private individual. I can complain about them. I used to love JetBlue. And uh, my flight with them was slated to be on Sunday morning. On Friday evening, here I am in the airport. And there's nowhere I could go to evade the background announcements. I was able to find a spot away from the television sets. It was sort of like psychological warfare where they want to make sure there's nowhere you can go where you could actually sleep if you wanted to. But I at least am away from the TVs and I don't know how much this mic is picking up. But in any event, you may hear low talking in the background periodically. But in any event, it was a Friday evening and I was trying to get out of my Sunday morning JetBlue tickets. All right, so I'm at the Atlanta airport. And, uh, you know, just to just do the math there, that's more than 24 hours in advance, right? It's, I wasn't supposed to fly until Sunday morning. It's Friday evening. So I got plenty of time to be able to do something. But the problem is, well, so I'm getting ahead of myself. I go to the JetBlue counter. I say, yep, my plan's changed. I need to leave earlier. Sorry, everything's sold out today, which is Friday. So I said, okay, what about tomorrow? Which would be Saturday. Sorry, everything's sold out. Okay, well, if I go to another airline to get out tonight, what happens with this flight for Sunday? And they said, oh, yeah, you can cancel that. And then, you know, you get credit in your travel bank. Okay, fine. So I go and get tickets through another airline. Okay, I made sure I got through security and everything just to make sure there's no snafus. Or no, no, actually, I didn't go through security yet because I wanted to cancel those JetBlue tickets. And so... I went to the website and wouldn't let me do it. It says that you, this ticket is not eligible for cancellation. I thought it was because I got like a basic blue or whatever the heck the thing is. And so I went and Googled, can I cancel my JetBlue tickets? And I looked at their policies and things for the different types of fares. And so for some types, there was a $100 cancellation fee. You know, and all of them, obviously, like if you changed it to a different fare that was more expensive, they'd charge you the difference, obviously. But... There was nothing in there about, oh, for this type of fare, you just can't cancel. And once you buy it, you're dead in the water if your plans change. Nothing like that that I saw. So I went to the counter, said, hey, I want to just cancel these. And they were looking at me like, why do you think you'd be able to do anything regarding JetBlue from a JetBlue counter? And they said, no, we can't do that here. You got to call. Well, I had been calling to try to change my tickets on the way to the airport. And when you would call their hotline, the customer service, it would say, due to unusually high call volume, you may experience significant wait times. Your estimated wait time is 220 minutes. All right, so if you do the math on that, that's almost four hours that they were telling me I was going to have to be on hold, right? And it's not just a one-off thing. I waited a few hours, called them back, and then my wait time had dropped down to something like 185 minutes at that point. All right, so anyway, long story short, I still have JetBlue tickets right now for Sunday, as I'm recording this now, it's in the wee hours of Saturday. So once employees start showing up, I'm going to go see if there's a JetBlue counter in this airport. I don't know if there will be to see if somebody can assist. But the point is, they were telling me at the counter, no, 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 we can't do anything here. 
just call them up. If you call them up, there's a wait time of three to four hours. And, and of course, on the automatic recording for the wait time, they say, we strongly encourage you to go to JetBlue.com where you can take care of all your needs. So you go there. I go to my managed reservation thing, you know, put in my confirmation code. It's got my itinerary and everything. And then I go to cancel this flight and it says this flight is not eligible for cancellation. So I screenshot all that and tweeted it at JetBlue asking them what to do. And obviously nobody replied. Okay, I'm done complaining. Let's talk about this episode. So here I am going to be reviewing the trilogy that filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce that name. M. Night, you know, the Sixth Sense guy. I was going to keep calling him M. Night from now on because his last name I'm not sure about. So I'm talking about the trilogy that M. Night did, starting with the movie Unbreakable, starring Bruce Willis, Samuel Jackson, then the movie Split, and then the movie Glass. All right. And so let me just mention because this is what happened with me. I liked a lot of M. Night's movies. You know, The Sixth Sense, obviously, is when he captured everybody's attention, got on the map. I didn't see the ending of that coming. And uh, I, I liked his movies. The one I couldn't get into was The Last Airbender, and that my wife was explaining to me, well, you know, maybe if you knew the backstory, and she was showing me like the, I don't know if it was a cartoon, I'm, I'm blanking out, and no, I think it was a cartoon, See, give me this, a little bit of the story and saying, you know, you'd appreciate it more. But in any event, that was the one that I, I, could, I, I couldn't even finish. I started it and I was like, I don't even go get what's going on. I didn't care about it. But um, the other ones, great stuff. I thought I liked a lot of his things. I loved Unbreakable when it came out. But then Split was being advertised in the theaters and just, you know, the premise is some guy kidnaps a bunch of high school girls and it just... Gave me the creeps. And I was like, you know, I don't, I don't feel like watching that movie. I don't, I don't need to see that. And then as when the movie Glass was going to come out and you could tell from the previews that, oh, this involves the same characters from Unbreakable, somebody mentioned how, oh yeah, Bob, you didn't know that? That that movie Split was also like in this universe, as it were. You know, this is, which I, I hadn't realized. And so I was like, are you kidding me? And so then I went and watched Split to get ready for the release of Glass. And, I, and I, I saw what he was trying to do with it, what M. Night was trying to do with that. So I still, you know, I don't care much for movies about kidnapping, but it's, I, I was glad that I had watched it. So what I'm number one doing is, in case you did like Unbreakable and didn't realize that this was part of a trilogy, I'm letting you know that. And number two, I'm going to say, if you kind of liked M. Night's other movies but never gave these ones a chance, I think you should. Because specifically, at the end of Glass, where you see where he's going with this whole thing, I, I was astonished. My jaw dropped, I think, in the theater at the end of Glass. And so I thought, well, you know what? I haven't seen barely anybody talk about it. So let me go ahead and devote this episode to that. So as I usually do when I do my movie reviews, let me stop at this point and say, if I've intrigued you in any way and you were, you're on the fence, there's going to be spoilers. In this. I'll try not to like spoil everything, but there's no way I can tell you the punchline that I want to tell without giving away some huge spoilers about what's going to happen in these movies. And so, like I say, if it's the kind of thing where, eh, you know, you were borderline, you just never got around to watching it, but maybe you would don't listen to the rest of this. Go watch the movie. Watch them in order. You know, watch Unbreakable first. If you don't like it, then, you know, forget about it. But I mean, if you like Bruce Willis and if you are okay with superhero movies, then go ahead and watch, watch these things. And uh, there, I've already given away a little bit of a spoiler, right? So that, that's what the genre is, right? So he's done horror stuff and he did Aliens with um, Signs, Mel Gibson. And... Now in this one, he's doing the superhero genre. Okay. So starting out with Unbreakable, as you start watching it, the what you end up realizing early on is that Bruce Willis is incredibly strong. And in, you know, perhaps tough would be a better word, that it's not just that he can you know, lift things or something or he can break through walls, but that you know, his, he is unbreakable. And it 
the way you know that or the you know the way it's little viewer first gets an inkling of this is that he's in a devastating train crash and he's the sole survivor everybody else dies and he doesn't have a scratch and so you know when i went back and rewatched the whole trilogy in preparation for doing this episode that really struck me because what's going to happen in glass is there's going to be a period where not only Bruce Willis's character, but also his son are going to have serious doubts. But well, yeah, I guess Bruce Willis, but the the son does in particular, right? Because the psychiatrist in that movie is going to try to convince him that, you know, you know, your dad's not really anything special, that this was all in your head. These abilities that you think your dad has and everything like that, or that they're not superhuman. There's not, there's nothing fantastical about it. But, that ignored, you know, the things she was trying to explain to them, particular inferences and how was it that Bruce Willis's character was able to, you know, go find McAvoy's character. So James McAvoy is the guy that plays the, the person with multiple personalities. She's going to try to convince him that, oh, the way that you think you, like, you used your superpowers of deduction and, you know, intuition and whatever, and you could just see what bad things people were doing. And that's how you fight crime. She's trying to explain it away. But the fundamental example, the thing that lets us know that Bruce Willis's character really is a superhero is that he was in that train crash and didn't, again, emerge without a scratch, whereas every single other person on that train was dead. All right, so that's really, you know, the thing that, that shows. And also then later in that first movie, when he has the flashback and remembers exactly what happened when he got into a car accident and how, you know, he wasn't hurt and came in, ripped, ripped the door open and saved, you know, the woman who would later become his wife. Again, that's showing that, oh, wait a minute, this isn't, you know, me just being a person of above average strength. So I think it's worth dwelling on that because, you know, when I was thinking about it, that's a recurring theme in fiction and perhaps in real life that, the the good guys are associated with physical strength, right? You see it um, like the Batman versus Joker, right? The great scene with uh, Christian Bale and, and Heath Ledger. I forget the exact wording, but he's like, you know, all oh, your strength you can't stop me. You know, and, and Batman's like just picking them up and throwing them against the wall and stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's so the Joker in that movie, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker is not some tiny little man or something. He's a, he's a big guy himself and he you know, uses his pencil trick and takes out that thug who's coming at him. You know, so he's a formidable character, but I mean, the point is Batman throws him around like a rag doll. All right, so Batman is way stronger than the Joker is. Superman is obviously way stronger than Lex Luthor. In Les Mis, Valjean is way stronger than Javert. You know, in the in the musical, you know, I am warning you, Javert. I am a stronger man by far. There is power in me, yet my race is not yet run. Okay, so I'm just saying. You once I started thinking about that, like that motif shows up all over the place. Where when there's confrontations, Optimus Prime is more physically powerful. I mean, I guess you could use the word stronger than Megatron. All right, in a one-on-one fight. Prime takes out Megatron. And it's not just because, oh, he's a sharpshooter or something, you know, in the classic showdown in the Transformers movie. You know, Megatron must be stopped no matter the cost. <laughs> I'm doing sound effects for you. It's three o'clock in the morning, folks. We want, all right? They, they fight, you know, Megatron's like, no, I'll fight you with my bare hands. And they go at it. Or I'll rip out, what does he say? Oh, something like I'll rip out your optics with my bare hands. Something like that. It, it's not a pleasant statement. It's, it's a bit hostile. All right, but my point being, it's not just that Prime is a good shot or something, even though he is. Earlier in that scene, he goes through and takes out a bunch of Decepticons all by himself with his gun. But in a one-on-one fight without weapons, Prime beats Megatron. Okay, so you see that. And it's it's interesting because you might have thought it would go the other way. Right? You might have, like, there's also, you see the, like, David versus Goliath is the most obvious example of where, um, you know... Oh, gee, the good guy versus the bad, you know, the bad guy is this big hulking monster. I guess that's another example. The Hulk is stronger than, you know, any person he's going to encounter, typically speaking. 
So you got David and Goliath. You can try to think of some others perhaps. But typically what it is, is that the good guys are associated with strength and might and the bad guys sort of hide in the shadows. Uh, oh, another obvious one in The Lion King, right? Mufasa versus, what's his name, Scar? Is that is that the uncle's name in that? Right. Obviously, Mufasa is way stronger and he has to be killed through deception. Look at my notes and see if I came with any other ones. Oh, and so one where it could go the other way is Indiana Jones, right? That there, where he's fighting the huge muscly guy in the in the first Indian, you know, the original Indiana Jones movie, the guy who ends up getting, you know, the the plane's propeller takes him out. There, you know, that's where it it kind of there's a an exception to these this sort of principle I'm laying down. Again, I'm just I was brainstorming trying to figure out like is this a rule or is it just there's enough on both sides. But even there, kind of what they're showing is, oh, Indy's real tough, right? It's like same thing in the Rocky Balboa movies, right? That, yeah, sometimes he faces opponents who are stronger than he is, like certainly Drago, but they're showing the Rocky is tougher than they are. He can take more punishment, right? He's unbreakable. So, you know, he's not a man, he's a piece of iron or whatever Drago says. And I, and I think, you know, certainly as a Christian, that makes sense. Because God is stronger than the devil, right? It's not, it's funny. It's not like there's this, this battle between good and evil. And, you know, if all the forces of good line up and we work together, gang, maybe we can stand up if we just have courage. And and, and that's actually not what the Bible says, right? I mean, God's in charge. Anything Satan does, it's because God allows it for his own good reasons. And I don't just say that as a euphemism. I mean, literally, for his own good reasons. I chose those words quite deliberately. All right? So what Satan does is evil, but God's allowance of it is necessarily good. Right? And, you know, this is an age-old conundrum. If evil things happen, it either means God is powerless to stop it or he lets it happen, which makes it look like he must be evil, And but that that's not correct. That syllogism isn't correct. Yes, God could stop it. He chooses not to. And because he's God, if he's doing something, it's good. And, you know, that's perplexing and borderline paradoxical. We don't understand it exactly, but that is true if you believe the Bible. So having said all that, though, even in the biblical context, though, you might say, well, then, you know, how does evil do anything, right? If it's not physically stronger... It's not more powerful. Well, is it smarter, right? Because that's how, that's what happens in the Superman. Yeah, Superman is way stronger than Lex Luthor, but Lex Luthor is super smart. He's an evil genius, and that's how he has a shot. Likewise, the Joker is extremely clever. You know, he comes up with plots to, you know, cause mayhem in Gotham or to take out the Batman sort of thing. But then notice even there, is it true that the Joker is smarter than Batman? I don't think so. Is Lex Luthor smarter than Superman? Now there, you know, you, you could push that. I'm not sure what they did. I don't read the comic books, really. And so uh, I don't know how it's depicted there. In the movies, it's not really the case that Lex Luthor is smarter than Superman. Lex Luthor's smarter than most other humans. But he's actually not smarter than Superman. It's just his smarts give him a shot of, you know, being at least a challenge to Superman, but, you know, he even says to him, and, uh, which one was it? I think it was Superman 4. He says, ah, you're the only one who could keep up with me, right? Because he sent some of the, these Superman's like, ah, I can only assume that you put something in one of those nuclear missiles that I hurled into the sun. So you see this in the Bible, of course, it's the serpent is the most clever of all the creatures in the garden, right? And so, it's showing that that's what evil does. And then, you know, you don't want to use a biblical context just in general. Evil has to hide in the shadows, right? It, it runs away from the light. And so, yes, even though, you know, if you're a libertarian and especially an anarcho-capitalist in today's world, you might say, oh, there's all this aggression and coercion out in the open. Well, yes and no. You see it as such, but it's actually not the case that the average person thinks that what the state does is inherently evil, right? The state has done a very good job using propaganda to cloak its activities with a veneer of respectability and legitimacy. 
right? And so why do they do that? And this is my point about the tenuous nature of political authority, that there is a sense, Mises pointed this out or, or said this a lot, there is a sense in which all governments are popular because the power of the state ultimately rests on the consent of the governed. Now, perhaps it's in a sort of tacit consent. Perhaps it's a resigned consent. But nonetheless, it is the case that there are way more people being ruled over than there are rulers, right? The ruling elite, the name of there, the term elite is a giveaway, is a very small fraction of the overall population. So the people are much stronger than the state apparatus. And that's why regimes can fall. That's why somebody can be a dictator on Tuesday and on Wednesday get beheaded because all of a sudden he loses popular support. And you could just turn on a dime. That's why the most tyrannical regimes are the ones that have the tightest control on information. If it really were the case that political power flows from the barrel of a gun, then regimes wouldn't care about controlling the schools or the news or the internet. And yet, it's again, it's in the most closed societies, the most tyrannical, where there's the tightest control over the flow of information, right? Because those dictators know, I can't let my people know the truth. Otherwise, I'm done for. I have to keep them in the dark. I have to trick them, right? So again, we're just going back to my point that I think M. Knight was correct to make, you know, who is clearly the good guy, the hero in this trilogy is Bruce Willis's character. Let me just look, his, his name is escaping me at the moment. Let me look that up. Bruce Willis, Unbreakable. What is his name? David Dunn, that's it. Okay, so that character is clearly the good guy, clearly the hero. And what is his overriding attribute is his physical strength. Now, he also has other powers. He's able to, if he touches people, he's able to uh, sort of ferret out their nefarious activities. And you can sort of see if they've been doing something naughty or in some cases, you know, naughty is not even the right word for it. But again, that's sort of secondary. That just kind of helps him figure out how to deploy his overriding characteristic, which is his physical strength and endurance, let's say, or, or toughness. All right. So perhaps I dwell too long on that particular issue, but I, I did want to point that out because, like I say, until, I, until this series came, until this movie really drove it home for me and I thought about it, I may have believed that, oh, the way good works is you know, like through teamwork or something that actually it's, you know, the, the bad guys are, are real strong and, you know, that's why they turn to, to crime or whatever is because they're, they're, they're so magnificent on an individual level that, you know, they can take and take and take on their own, like, you know, a till of the hunt or something. And it takes normal people grouping together and using a superior system of cooperation in order to, and, I mean, that's all true, but it's also the case that, no, like the really heroic, the strongest people and what I, you know, those are the ones that are the good guys, typically, certainly in fiction. And I, I think, you know, in real life as well, and that actually the villains, the way they work, it's not that they can beat the best of the good guys in one-on-one -on -one confrontations. It's that they have to be sneaky about it. Okay. So a huge component of what's going on in Unbreakable is that Bruce Willis's character, David Dunn, has these abilities, but doesn't fully realize it. Okay, so there's a great scene where, um, you know, so he, he comes out after the train wreck incident, and then he, he, I think he goes to work, and then he comes out, and on his car, there's a, a note saying, um, I think it says, have, have you ever been sick? or something like that, or, you know, have you ever been sick in your life? Or how many days in your life have you been sick? Something like that. And so he's puzzled, and he, he goes and asks his wife, you know, hey, do you remember me ever being sick? And she's like, what? What are we talking about? And he said, just think back, you know, you, from all the time you've known me, back to, you know, when we were, we've been married, when we were dating, can you ever remember me being sick? And she's like, well, uh, yeah, there was the, well, wait, no. And it's, 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 it's really a well-done scene. 
and by the way, that's um, Robin Wright is the actress who's, you know, who's his wife in that movie. She does a good job. So like I say, the acting is very good because it's, it's what you would think would happen if someone had actually never been sick in his life. But, you know, my point is it, it was great because it showed he didn't realize that until that note, which is, of course, from Samuel Jackson's character, um, Elijah Price or Mr. Glass. He didn't realize it himself. He just never thought about it. And then even his wife didn't realize it, right? So you you would think, you know, a priori, without knowing about it, you might think, gee, if there was some guy who had never been sick, you know, this would go down in the Guinness Book of World Records or there'd be some fable about so-and-so, you know, Paul Bunyan and his buddy Jim. Now, Jim couldn't cut down trees like Paul Bunyan, but Jim went his whole life without ever being sick. You would think people would know that. But yet, <laughs> what M. Night is showing us in this movie is... David Dunn, his whole life, had never been sick and didn't even realize that. He didn't even notice it. He just, you know, went about his life and, you know, because on any given day when you're not sick, you don't notice it, you don't make a big deal out of it. He just was coasting through life, not realizing that among other things, he never gets sick ever. All right. And in what also what was interesting too is, and I really like how just people are cynical and are are missing the amazing part and they're just trivializing it is, he asks his boss. So David Dunn leaves a message or note, I don't remember how the, the communication works, to his boss at his job and says, how many sick days have I taken since I've worked here? So what he's trying to do is trying to think back and say, have I ever been sick? Because, you know, once he gets that note on his car, he honestly can't remember. He was bracking his brain. He assumed he must have been, but he's like, well, what, when? And he's thinking, he's like, I can't remember ever being sick. And so he asks his boss, have I ever called in sick? Thinking, you know, maybe he's going to remind me, oh, yeah, back in October 22nd of last year, you called in, remember? You had the flu or something. And so what happens is his boss gets back to him. I think it was like he left him a message on his uh, answering machine. And he, he says, I get it. You want to raise. Five years and no sick days, you made your point. Right? So he, the boss when he went and looked it up and realized, oh, wow, David's been working here for five years and he's never once called in sick. He didn't think it's because David's actually trying to figure out, have I ever been sick in my life? He thinks, oh, David knows full well he's now gone five years and never called in sick. And instead of just asking me for a raise, he's making me go look it up first. Okay, okay, joker. Go, yeah, here, I'll give you a raise. Good, good enough, you know. So that, again, the part of what's going on here is to show this guy is a superhero and yet nobody knows it, not even him. And that even as the evidence accumulates, everyone just keeps reducing it to, you know, they're explaining it away. They don't want to grapple with the fact that there's a superhero amongst them. So there's a nice part in this movie where Elijah Price, you know, Samuel Jackson's character who ends up, you know, being Mr. Glass, the villain, he explains to David Dunn that he thinks comic books, you know, they're not just some silly pastime for children, that he thinks that was an important way that humans pass on cultural information or, or pass on historical knowledge, but in a certain form. And he says, you know, maybe they're exaggerated or whatever, but he thinks they actually capture essential truths about humanity and about good versus evil. And he says that, you know, what, the comic books often depict is a person who was put here to protect us, to guard us. And so obviously there he's referring to David Dunn in that instance, right? So Elijah Price realizes David Dunn is a superhero before David Dunn realizes it. And part of what Elijah's purpose is, is to activate him. So it's interesting because the woman who will come in in the third movie, in the movie Glass, her mission is going to be to deactivate David Dunn, to try to get him to stop thinking he's a superhero, to ignore the abilities that he obviously has. All right, so it's, again, it's interesting how there's many respects in which Mr. Glass is the bad guy or a bad guy in these movies, but yet when it comes to telling somebody what his potential is and trying to encourage him to live up to it, that's what he's doing. And so... What's interesting in that movie, too, is there's a scene when David Dunn, you know, first goes to meet Elijah Price and he ends up saying, you know, I, oh, I thought the I thought the person who wrote that note and gave it to put it on my car had answers for me, something like that. He brings his son 
and you know, it's interesting. Why, why would he bring his son there? Like he knew something important was going to happen at this meeting. And yet when, you know, there's glasses of water sitting in front of him and when he gets suspicious and I, for, I forget exactly what the interchange is or the exchange is that makes David Dunn all of a sudden get suspicious of Elijah Price and think that like, you know, this guy is a nut job. And he, you know, he, he grabs a glass of water like to not let his kid drink it. Right. So it's interesting how, you know, but, but again, they, you just might take it for granted. You're watching a movie and not think twice about it, but it did occur to me upon this, this time around watching that movie in preparation for this episode that I wondered, you know, why is it that David Dunn knew to bring his son to this meeting and the kid heard what Elijah Price was saying and then says, are you saying my dad's a super? And then, you know, he gets interrupted and Elijah Price, you know, he just, I forget his exact answer, but he's, you know, saying, I'm just saying, da, 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 right. But the kid obviously gets it. The kid realizes, oh yeah, this guy thinks my dad's a superhero and let me think about it. Maybe he is. Okay, so another theme in this movie is that David Dunn was sad, right? His his marriage was plagued by sadness. That's, you know, partly why he and his wife are on the verge of divorce when the movie opens. He says to Elijah, this morning was the first one I hadn't felt sadness. I thought the person who left that note had answers for me, okay? And, you know, and he goes into security. That's That's his line of work. And so what, you know, Elijah is getting him to see and what I think M. Knight is trying to tell us, the viewers, is that if you have these gifts and you're not using them, you're going to be sad, right? You're going to be depressed. And so here's now what I'm saying to you, and this is partly why I'm doing this episode, is if you are suffering from depression, and it's not because your family got killed in a fire or, you know, some objectively horrible thing, if it's just, man, I don't really know, on paper, there's nothing that's that wrong. I just man, I just, I'm not happy. I don't, I don't feel fulfilled. I just, why am I here? What am I doing? What is the point of all that? Consider the possibility that you are incredibly special, that you have amazing abilities, that you are someone who has been equipped to be a hero, to be a protector, to guard others. And you are doing it, but in a very limited manner. You're not scratching the surface of your gifts and abilities, your powers, if you want to use that phrase or that term. So just consider that possibility. Doesn't that make more sense than alternate explanations? Again, this won't be true for everybody. There are some people that, you know, objectively horrible things happen and that's totally be why you're in a funk, you know. But if that's not quite it, if you just, yeah, I... It's, you know, in other words, if I knew someone else who had the same objective circumstances in his or her life that I do, I wouldn't expect that person to be miserable, to just wonder what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning. You know, this seems like they have a decent life and, and I certainly don't judge them. And yet, why is it that I'm holding myself to this impossibly high standard? Why is it that the things I'm doing aren't good enough? What? And again, consider the possibility that rather than it being there's something wrong with you, that you're weak or that you're a failure, perhaps it's because you know how immense your potential is. And deep down, you know you're not living up to it. And that's why you feel this way. Consider it. See if that doesn't make more sense than the depressing explanations, the ones that say, oh yeah, the reason I feel like this is because I'm actually one of the worst people I know. Like the, you know, the reason I'm condemning myself, even though I'm not condemning the average person walking before me is because I'm so much worse than the average person, right? Is it, does that really make sense? And if not, like I said, flip it, consider the alternate possibility. Maybe, you know, you're capable of doing a lot more than the average person. And since you're not, that's why you feel this way. <laughs> There's a scene in which David Dunn says, I'm just an ordinary man. And the response is, no, you're not. Why do you keep saying that? Okay, by the way, a plane just landed. It's 241. I'm not sure where that plane came from. In case you hear some background chatter. It's funny. The people were walking by just as I was talking about the, consider that you're special. You have gifts. <laughs> They're like, there's some guy over there recording a self-help tape for his subscribers. All right. The movie split. So I, I spent a lot of time on that first one. I'm not going to 
spend nearly as much time on splitting. But so again, split is the one where James McAvoy is the guy who the actor who who plays someone with multiple personalities. So I do think M. Night was getting into this, you know, this idea where they come from. Well, because his this guy's parent or mother in particular was awful, and they show a few scenes to let you know, like, Ugh. and M. Night explores this. So he also in, you know, showing that what happens to Casey Cook, right? So she's like the star besides James McAvoy. She's like the co-star of this movie. She's, so there's just three girls that get kidnapped and Casey is the real resourceful one. And, you know, through a series of flashbacks, you end up realizing that, oh, she was abused, I guess, what, by her uncle, who then ends up, I don't know if he formally adopted her or just took her in, you know, when her dad dies. but you know, you realize, oh, she's had a tough childhood. And then also, if you remember in The Sixth Sense, one of the people, one of the ghosts that the little kid has to go help, you know, rest in peace, was one whose mother killed her by, you know, poisoning her over a long stretch of time and then was doing the same thing to that girl's, what, sister. And so that's what the ghost was was doing, was saying, you got to, you know, help my dad and my sister realize that it was mom all along. All right, so M. Night, I think that's one of the things he's, you know, he explores in these movies is, you know, what happens if you got, you know, when adults really mess with kids. All right, and so it's, like I say, I don't know, it's a very distasteful subject for me, and I don't really like that. That's why I didn't watch the movie Split originally, but then when I saw the series, I went ahead and did it. I'm just noting that in case you never thought about all those connections from the M. Night movies. But in any event, so I'll call him Dennis. You know, James McAvoy's character, who again has numerous personalities, but ones that's often in the light is Dennis. He goes and sees this Dr. Karen Fletcher for treatment. He's her patient. And so when she is talking to her friend, her friend says, uh, you know, in reference to her patients, it says, you're talking about them like they have superpowers or something. These are patients, all right? And, and so this is a thing that is explored in this movie where she says, I think it, I have this quote that I jotted down I, and I think where this came from is like she's presenting at a conference, Dr. Karen Fletcher is. And she says, have these individuals through their suffering unlocked the potential of the human brain? All right, so she's documenting examples of people who, you know, they have different personalities and like some of them are allergic to bee stings, but other ones aren't, right? So it's like, oh, if you're this personality, you're allergic to a bee sting. But if you're this personality, you're not, even though it's the same physical body, right? So what they're getting at is to show how much the mind has control over the body, right? And then, of course, when McAvoy's character becomes the beast, he has superhuman abilities. He can scale walls and he's incredibly strong and bullets bounce off of him. All right. And, and what I like is they do a decent job in the movie to try to explain how is that physically possible, right? Like how could it be that a human being's body could, you know, regardless of what you believe, even if you did think you were a beast and that you had these amazing abilities, how could that be physically possible? And they do at least you know, give a nod to that. Like they try to explain that, like, well, this is what happens and da, 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 and maybe that's the way somebody could, you know, a human could scale walls and things like that. All right, so they at least try. But that's that's what's going on in this movie. So again, M. Night is exploring. There are extraordinary individuals who have amazing abilities. Unfortunately, some people turn towards the dark side with them, but let's not ignore the fact that these people exist and this is a real thing. Just an aside, I noticed at the end of this movie that, you know, after he leaves the zoo, you know, and he's, the beast has come and the other personalities inside, you know, Dennis's body are considering what have happened to her because some of them were skeptical. They knew that this beast was allegedly coming and would have these abilities, but they didn't know for sure. And then he did it and they're looking like, I think he was looking at his chest in the mirror where the bullets had bounced off them. They're like, like this really happened. Like we, we actually can turn into somebody that this beast that bullets can't hurt. This is amazing. So anyway, in that scene, if you look, the 
the bathroom, you know, the, the thing that holds toothbrushes has several toothbrushes in it where this guy is staying. So I think what they're showing is, you know, to the multiple personalities in this guy's body, it would be unhygienic. It would be gross to like share a toothbrush with the other personalities. And so that's why he's got a bunch of different toothbrushes, even though it's just him in this little dinky room. Okay, let me just say a few words about glass here and I'll wrap this episode up. Again, just driving home what a... Well, well, okay, so first of all, when the thing starts, you see the time has passed and it's fantastic because they have Bruce Willis is still, you know, he comes back as David Dunn, but then the same actor who played his son in Unbreakable comes back and is again his son in this movie, but the kid is older, right? So Bruce Willis doesn't look that much older because it's, you know, he's an adult, but the kid has obviously grown up. So it's wonderful. I just, I love that touch that they were able to get that actor. And it, and, you know, and that's really the the touching part of this is like the, the bond that that kid had with his dad, you know, and it's, you know, and it's like every kid looks up to his, every, you know, boy looks up to his dad and, you know, thinks his dad is a superhero and then, no, his dad really is a superhero. It's awesome. And that's what, of course, what makes the ending of this movie just so heart-wrenching when, you know, you think it's turned out in one way and then the surprise and what really happens to David Dunn and how much, you know, how absolutely devastating it is to the kid. And it's like, oh, no. All right. So what I like, though, is early on when they kept, when they bring David Dunn into custody, you know, the psychiatrist or whatever, she just comes out and, she, and he's surrounded by cops. And she says to him something like, uh, you know, David Dunn, you may find a way out of here, but you'll have to hurt a lot of officers. And so that's why he, he just, you know, surrenders. Okay, so they're, again, just showing she knows he's a good guy. She appeals to his decency. He probably could escape a lewd capture, but with all those cops surrounding him, he, you know, and she's telling him, do you really want to do this? You're going to have to hurt a lot of police officers. You know you don't want to do that, right? So she knows he's a good guy. And that's what makes what she does at the end even more diabolical because, again, she can't feign ignorance and say, oh, well, you know, there are these titans walking around and we had to limit him you know for everyone's protection no she knew full well that david dunn was a good guy and he was not you know a threat to anybody the only people he would was a threat to were genuine awful people and you know even there he didn't necessarily kill them it was just he did what he had to do to you know rescue the innocent so again that that scene was very telling where where that's the way they brought him in was by relying on his decency and his unwillingness to harm people who are, you know, quote, just doing their job. Okay. So she says to them, she's, you know, she's got the three of them in there. That's kind of like the, the cool thing about this movie and she's got all the, you know, Mr. Glass, the beast, you know, that character and David Dunn's character. She's got them all in the same facility treating them, you know, sort of like a, a mental hospital. And She's saying how you all suffer from thinking you're superheroes or that you have superhuman abilities. And she says, would you be surprised to hear that a growing number of people suffer from this delusion? So obviously this is a movie and M. Night's putting those words in it, but I think what he's trying to do, what M. Night's trying to do is to say more and more people are starting to realize that they're special and they have gifts. And of course, what her job is, is to beat that out of them. She says, you think you have extraordinary gifts. I am here to discuss the possibility that you are mistaken. All right. And then I'm just looking at my notes here. Elijah at one point says, uh, everything extraordinary can be explained and yet it is still true. Right. So he's Elijah is, you know, who's a, who you re, you appreciate just how intelligent he is in this movie. What he's saying is, yeah, for any particular instance of what happens, you know, we, we could explain how is it that the beast can scale walls. We could explain perhaps how is it that David Dunn is, is so strong? Like, why did he survive that train crash? But it's still true that they're extraordinary, right? These really, you know, and this kind of, this kind of like my take with the with biblical miracles. I think if you sent Neil deGrasse Tyson back in time, you know, he might, at the time of Moses, for example, he might say, oh, well, there was this chemical change and that's why uh, the river turned blood red. And then that killed all the fish. And so all these flies came and the frogs jumped out because of, you know, the chemical composition had changed. And there were, you know, so these, the frogs overran Egypt and then the flies came 
and you know all this stuff happened and oh then there were, it was really dark and that's why all the crops failed and you could ex- so you know he could come up with a quote rational scientific explanation for all the plagues but still that would be miraculous and the fact that Moses predicted them because God told them they were coming I mean that would that would still be the brute fact staring you in the face even if you could come up with a naturalistic explanation for each thing and that's consistent you know that reality is what it is and it's, I don't think Adams just stopped existing whenever a biblical miracle would have occurred, right? That that's it would if you analyze it, you say, oh no, there's molecules and they're following the laws of physics, and da, da, da. and yet the system as configured would allow amazing, miraculous things to happen, right? So I'm just saying, if the biblical miracles did happen, that's the way it would happen. That you could go and observe them and explain them away, but yet they still happen. So I, I liked how he's got. Elijah saying everything extraordinary can be explained and yet it is still true. Again, in this movie, Elijah is the one who unlocks David Dunn. He sets it up so that, you know, David Dunn thinks, he actually kind of tricks him, thinks that the beast is going to go do some awful public display that's going to hurt a lot of innocent people. And David Dunn is locked in his cell with the, behind this huge metal door. And Elijah, you know, says to him on the recording, he says, you can't break a door because it's metal and ordinary people's bones break against metal. And then he ends in saying, people are going to die if you don't get through that door. And that really motivates David Dunn, who up till now has, you know, that psychiatrist has gotten into his head and he's been doubting and wondering, oh, maybe really, you know, these last few years I have been delusional and I haven't been a superhero. And he runs and, you know, smacks into the door and starts denting it and then just knocks the thing over. And so the you know the viewers like oh okay yeah yeah he is a superhero like like even the viewer when you you might have been doubting up till that point they're like no 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 the guy he's a superhero awesome right so again Elijah's purpose and he even says that that's what his purpose is is to unlock David Dunn to get David Dunn to rise to his full potential and so say what you will about Elijah but that is a noble thing in contrast to what the secret society does the people who have the shamrocks are doing. So, you know, after she takes out Dunn, she's given a report to this committee, the secret society, and she says, all three were real. If you approve, I'll move to the next city. How important what we're doing is, you know, I have that in parentheses, I think that's a paraphrase, maintaining balance, keeping order, right? And so, you, you know, you realize at this point, this huge plot twist or this huge surprise that there's this secret society that goes around and identifies both superheroes and supervillains and takes them out in order to just maintain balance. And they, they think they're the good guys. They think they're the ones ensuring order or equity. And she even says at one point to David, we try to stop both of you. There can't be gods amongst us. It's just not fair, right? So that's really where, where she's coming from. It's not fair. She can't tolerate their society can't tolerate the existence of extraordinary people who have abilities beyond those of the average person. And so they just eliminate them, right? So you realize even though the beast is awful, does, you know, horrific things, even though Elijah Price did some really bad things to try to, you know, discover these superheroes, you realize there's a sense in which what that secret society is doing, what that lady is doing is just so much more insidious and disgusting and evil because like their purpose is to go find excellence and snuff it out. And it's just like, oh, when you realize what they're up to. And so that's why it's like when you think she's won and you think that, oh, she's not. And then you realize how Elijah tricked her and played her in order to explore. Like that's when you're cheering like, yeah. So anyway, that's I'm saying that that's the parts where when I watched that movie the first time my jaw dropped. When I realized like when they were, you know, pushing David Dunn's head under the water and I'm like, what the heck's going on? Why are they doing? And then she explains who she is and, you know, David Dunn sees the flashbacks to her talking to these societies and what. And I was like, oh, man. And then when, like I say, Elijah, when you realize what he was doing all along and how really super sharp he is. So the last thing I'll mention here is Elijah sort of has this speech to cap the trilogy and he's explaining, you know, from the grave what he did and how he's standing up to the secret society that, you know, he realized who, that these people existed. And he says, 
I believe that if everyone sees what just a few people become when they wholly embrace their gifts, others will awaken. Belief in oneself is contagious. We give each other permission to be superheroes. We will never awaken otherwise. Whoever these people are who don't want us to know the truth, today they lose. All right, so that's some powerful stuff. And so I'm going to now step back and say, I don't think M. Night intended this merely to be an entertaining trilogy, just a bunch of flicks to pass the time. I think M. Night knows we are entering some dark times and we need to activate the superheroes. We need permission to be superheroes. That's why, incidentally, I think zombie movies and superhero, you know, comic book movies have become huge in the last 15 years. I think the American public has realized deep down we are headed toward an absolute calamity, hence the zombie apocalypse movies, and we need heroes to rise up to get through this. Hence the fascination with the, you know, the charm. Why are people so into Marvel and DC movies all of a sudden? And by all of a sudden, I, you know, I don't mean since last Thursday. I know it's been a trend that's been building, but I, I think that's partly why is that people deep down know we're going to need these people to rise up. And so M. Knight himself, let me read that again. This is sort of like the summary speech that Elijah Price's, Mr. Glass's character gives. I believe that if everyone sees what just a few people become when they wholly embrace their gifts, others will awaken. Belief in oneself is contagious. We give each other permission to be superheroes. We will never awaken otherwise. Whoever these people are who don't want us to know the truth, today they lose. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.